As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to the Friends Like These, a show about coalitions and friendships and the limits and possibilities thereof. And also Game of Thrones, Anna. Hey, it's John Lovett. I'm here. John Lovett's making a special guest appearance. He is going to help field a reader question. Uh, and we're going to do a longer than I thought it would be digression on Game of Thrones. But it, we loved every minute of it. And so hopefully you guys will love it, too. It is uh, not spoiler free. It is it is full of spoilers. But we warn you. So like don't 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 tweet at me about how we're we worried about spoilers. It's going to be very clear the moment at which there will be spoilers. So you can just listen with impunity as you always do. <laughs> and then when the time comes to talk about Game of Thrones, we say what's coming up next is a spoiler. You'll know time to throw your phone in the volcano. And also I have taken to putting uh, time code stamps in the show notes. Oh, that's good too. So you can also know where to skip to if you are exactly. really interested in Game of Thrones spoilers. Also, I other housekeeping item is that does are we still selling tickets to live shows for Pod Save America? You know, that's a great question, Anna. They may be all sold out. Oh wow. Except six. <laughs> I think they're sold out except for Santa Barbara. And uh but um so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Okay, well, I have a live show coming up, which I, you think, do? I think I told you guys about. It's in Austin. Oh, cool. It's in Austin, Texas. It's on my birthday, September 23rd. And I'll be talking to Michael Steele. Is he a friend of the pod? Have you guys talked to him? I don't think we have. So he's a he is a friend of the pod to be. Okay. A former chair of uh, the RNC and turned never Trump-ish kind of conservative. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. I, I actually know him from being on uh, doing the... IOP cool. fellowship at University of Chicago. I don't know about these never Trumpish people. Yeah, I think he was never went full hog, never Trump. Hmm. But that might make him especially hmm. interesting to talk to. That's all I have to say about so. that. Hmm. Hmm. Am I still on this show? You, uh, we're going to get rid of you now, and I'm going to talk to Nina Sechia about covering Hurricane okay. Harvey. Well, I look forward to that. Welcome, Nina Satija. You're a reporter for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting, you've done a lot of amazing work uh, for the Texas Tribune and Reveal, not just around flooding and disaster preparedness, but also I saw you did a lot of the sex trafficking work that the Texas Tribune has been covering. You have the the real ha- glass half full beat, huh? There, <laughs> yes, it's um, all uh, bunnies and flowers and smiling. That's what I cover. Yeah, I hope I hope you have a really wonderful way of of uh, you know. Uh, keeping your resilience up because you're, you're, we're talking to you from, are you in Houston? You're, you're covering the flood right now, right? Yes. Yes. I'm in Houston. So what have you seen? Well, my colleague Kia Collier and I have been here 
since Friday. Uh, we got here early because um, we wanted to make sure that we weren't having we weren't going to have trouble getting into Houston by the time things were bad. Um, so to be honest with you, we sat around for the first day, and we were kind of like, "Is is the rain going to get bad here or not?" Um, and then we woke mm-hmm. up on Sunday morning, and it was bad. You know, people were mm-hmm. already trapped on their roofs. Um, highways were flooding. We stayed in an area downtown that we knew was going to be high ground so that we wouldn't get flooded out and be trapped. Um, But uh, it's been we've seen a lot of devastation over the last few days. And unfortunately, this is not a surprise to you. You've been covering the gaps in Houston and you know South Texas uh, disaster preparedness. You've been covering. I want to get to the failure of the coalitions to, to do anything about about flooding preparedness for Houston. and. The pieces that you've written have gone up on the Texas, you know, been replenished on the Texas Tribune site. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen them. And of course, it's eerie to read what you wrote about happening. And I just wonder what that's like for you to have written all this, being the Cassandra, you know, saying this is coming and echoing you, not just you being the Cassandra, but you echoing the voices of, of scientists and other experts warning about something like this happening and then to be there in the middle of it. Yes, uh, it's definitely surreal and eerie. Um, you know, we we didn't even really have the worst case scenario for the Houston region, which we originally wrote about uh, in Hell and High Water and in the Reveal podcast, Mighty Ike. That was a hurricane making a direct hit on the Houston area and sending catastrophic storm surge up the Houston Chip Channel, which is a very important industrial area for the state and the country. Um, that did not occur. The the hurricane hit closer to Rockport, as we all know. But the rains that it brought were so catastrophic in and of themselves that, and, and we did write about how Houston is not ready for the next torrential rainstorm in our follow-up project, Boomtown, Floodtown. So it is absolutely surreal to be seeing what we're seeing right now uh, and seeing scientists' predictions come true. And that is maybe what I want to talk to you the most about, because... One of the things we talk a lot a lot about on this show is how do people come together to change things? You know, how do you form coalitions and how do you change people's minds? And to me, the backstory of the devastation in Harvey seems to be a lot about the failure of, of coalitions and the failure for people to take in new information and the failure of people to change their minds. You talked to one person. Talbot. Yes, Talbot. What is who is what is his? Yeah, it's, he's a Mike Talbot former head of the Harris County Flood Control District. We interviewed him, I think, like the day before he retired. Right. And he we, he had this job. His job was to help prepare Houston for floods. And he seemed to be doing the bureaucratic equivalent of putting his hands over his ears and saying, la, 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 I can't hear you. And I, he had tons of people coming to him, including you. I, although I love it. What, it. There's one sort of scene in your story where you present him with, the evidence from, you know, climate experts and you know, yeah. preparedness experts. And he says, oh, you need to find new experts. Yeah. Starting and- here with me. <laughs> I remember that. What do you think is going on there? Is it just, does he really not believe, did the people who refused to make the changes really not think this would happen? I don't know. I don't, I have to believe they really didn't believe it would happen because the other alternative is that they knew it would happen. They were just blinded by greed or pride or some other, you know, vice. Yeah. So um, let me say two things. First of all, you know, I think actually Mike Talbot and his successor and all the other officials of the Harris County Flood Control District 
city of Houston state probably knew that we were going to get rain like this someday. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you can go to the Harris County flood control district website. It says this today. I believe it said it even before Harvey, the next flood, you know, the next big rainstorm is coming. Something, some language like that, you know, are you ready? So, so I would say it's, it's not so much that they didn't believe this would happen. It's two things. It's first that, and I'm talking specifically about Mike Talbot and his successor who told us he agrees. So I'm talking specifically about the heads of the Harris County Flood Control District. They, they, they knew that one day we would have a rainstorm like this. They don't seem to be concerned about whether that, that they don't seem to be concerned about whether climate change has contributed to that, whether climate change is a factor in this storm. They don't seem to be concerned that this may not be such a rare event anymore. That was one thing they really talked to us a lot about. Yes, we've gotten these horrible rainstorms. Even before Harvey, we had tax day floods of 2016 and April of 2016 also really crippled the city and the region. And they said, well, these are rare events. Well, how rare are these events? So that, that's one thing I think they are not all that interested in studying. And they, they told us that the Harris County Flood Control District said it has no plans to study the impacts of climate change and whether perhaps we should be preparing for larger and more devastating rainfall and flooding. So that's number one. Number two, they don't agree with scientists, with every scientist we talked to. They don't agree with every scientist we talked to who said that development in the region is contributing to more severe flooding. So those are the mm -hmm. things that they don't agree with. I think they knew that this rain was going to come one day, but they don't agree on what should be done about it. Well, but it's it's, it's kind of a, it boils down to a kind of carelessness though, right? That almost makes it worse to me because they can see that this is going to happen, but they don't make changes in policy because I guess you're saying, well, because they don't believe that development has an impact, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what, and, what they think here's, here's what they have told us. Um, right. They believe that all their regulations, all the regulations put in place by the flood control district, by the city of Houston, by surrounding counties, even have done enough to, prevent development from, from increasing the severity of flooding. You know, so the, all the different requirements you have to follow if you build in a floodplain, which vary greatly, by the way, from one locality to another in the Houston region. Harris County Flood Control right. District officials told us they think all of those are sufficient. Uh, scientists overwhelmingly disagree. Um, so, yeah, certainly, you know, there's some policy changes that scientists would like to see that, that flood control officials and others, uh, county officials, are not, don't seem to be particularly interested in implementing. Um, so that's, that's certainly, there's certainly a lack of consensus on what should be done. I think what they would say, what, what they told us is the reason that we're so unprepared for these storms is also because we have outdated infrastructure. And that is correct. We have, our bayous are very old. Our drainage systems are very old. And is the public willing to pay even to fix those, forgetting all the other development regulations and things that scientists want to pay, change? I'll, I'll give you an example. The city of Houston tried to implement a drainage fee on residents to help them upgrade their drainage, and they got sued over it. So it is, I think a lot of officials are thinking, what is the public willing to pay for? Um, you know, they, they scream and yell after these storms. They want to flood less. But when we ask them for more money, this is what officials tell us. You know, they don't want to give it. Right. There is, this isn't just a failure of like bureaucrats. There is also a certain amount of um, the tragedy of the commons here. Although I believe this is a Mike Talbot quote. From your from your floodtown boomtown piece or boomtown floodtown piece, 
if you look at the number of people affected in Harris County, it's less than 1% of the population. Is the other 99% willing to pay for a much more robust system? Yeah. Well, it's certainly not going to be 1% Which is of the how I thought government worked, storm. honestly. Like, that is how I thought government worked, was that the 99% paid for the safety of the 1%, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, but now it is going to be. Yeah, it's going to be more 99% than ninety nine percent of people. It's going to be a lot more than one yeah. percent after Harvey. And I guess my concern, and why I'm trying to sort of dive into the thinking behind the refusal to make changes after the last three once in a lifetime catastrophes, is that I worry that even after Harvey, which is such on the face of it, right, a massive catastrophe, one of the worst we've ever seen. Yeah. Um, one of the most expensive rebuilding projects the United States will ever see, um, that there's not sort of the heuristic framework in place for people to change their minds even now, for people to do more. Because one of the things you document in your pieces is that there have been these, for the last 15, 20 years, they've been these once-in-a-lifetime, so-called, right? Right. Um, Floods and hurricanes. And after each one, there's a hue and cry, and then nothing changes. Is there anything different now? Or do you think, because it is a reporting you've done tell you, there's just not kind of the philosophical framework in place for people to to be able to change their minds about this, to be able to do something different? Can the Mike Talbots of the world see Harvey and then just come back at you with the same same ideas saying, no, this wasn't about development. This was about infrastructure. No, this wasn't about climate change. This was about just a freak accident of some kind, a freak storm. Freak event. Yeah. We'll have to see what they say in the aftermath of this. We're still sort of dealing with the storm right now. They're still uh, dealing with these reservoirs that have gone to capacity. And, And so we'll have to see what their response is once we've started the cleanup. I will say that after Tropical Storm Allison in 2001, which was before Harvey, the worst rainstorm to befall an American city in modern history, um, the city and the county did try to make some changes. They, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, they tried to restrict development in the 100-year floodplain. That's the area that triggers flood insurance requirements. Um, so they tried to do that. They tried to also restrict development in the floodways, which is an even more than more likely area to flood than the 100-year floodplain. It didn't work out. There were lawsuits were filed. There was a lot of community opposition. Um, I'll give you another example. A few years later, the state actually paid for signposts to go all over the city of Houston and to show in a hurricane situation, which is not what happened over this week, but if there were to be a hurricane, how high might the water go? Might the storm surge get? And so it would show like, you know, category three storm, this many feet. Mm -hmm. And it was, they were all over these coastal areas of outside of Houston. And uh, there was such a hue and cry about that that they took the signpost down. Um, So there have been some efforts. This is a city where so many people that are moving here aren't aware of the risk. There are so many new people living in Houston today that were not living here during Tropical Storm Allison that didn't see the devastation. So that's another big challenge that officials have Mm -hmm. here is getting people to be aware. And I think this storm has clearly been in the national headlines now, international headlines for days. If people outside of Houston start to look at this city and say, do I really want to move here? Maybe that will be the trigger point because what county officials told us during our original reporting is, well, if we strengthen the regulations anymore, then people are going to move elsewhere. 
<laughs> we, we heard that. I think there's a quote in Boomtown Floodtown to that effect. Um, and I, I don't mean to, this is, I don't mean to laugh, except that that is probably true, you know, uh, in some ways, but also isn't part of, part of the plan. You don't want people just moving in without the infrastructure to support them and without the plan to support them. This is like saying, if we tell people there isn't enough room on the boat, we might not, the boat might not overflow. <laughs> you should tell people if they're moving to a place, like there, there's, there is thinking behind putting regulations in place that might cause people to think twice about moving there. Although one thing that I want to talk about, and I know you've been thinking about is Houston will be a different city from now on. Right. And this open, you know, open arms attitude towards um, newcomers in Houston has been, you know, has had a bright side as well. You know, Houston is such a a vibrant or has been such a vibrant and diverse city, right? Um, a huge immigrant population. Yes. Um, I know the crooked media listeners would be happy to hear that despite whatever your assumptions might be about social um, policy in Texas, a very liberal city as well. Um, you know, one of the, the first uh, openly gay mayor of a major metropolitan city, uh, Mayor of Houston just stepped down. Uh, Anise Parker, is that her name? Yes. Yeah, I think that's how I you believe pronounce so. it. And just a really, really interesting city because of all the new people there, right? right? And I wonder, though, it sort of makes me sad because I think there's a lot of people that feel like there's a hopeful place where social liberals and, you know, economic conservatives can come together. But it seems to me that this very sort of um, open arms attitude towards newcomers, but combined with a very libertarian attitude on development is what has created the situation now, right, which is a, a population that we can see how wonderfully diverse it is, but it perhaps is too large a population for, for what Houston was able to stand. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, part of the issue is not just the city of Houston, but the Houston region. There are so many areas outside the city of Houston that are unincorporated. They're in Harris County, the county that surrounds Houston, but they don't have a mayor. They don't have a lot of local government. They don't have a lot of infrastructure. A lot of sprawl has been allowed to happen. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's that scientists would say that is certainly contributing to what we're seeing now. I, I do want to say that, you know, Houston has always had problems with flooding since it began its time as a city. Um, it's in an area that is prone to this kind of problem. It's, it's near the coast. Um, it, a lot of it was once a swamp. Um, it's very flat. And so I think if you're going to get rainfall like this, it, you know, you're going to have some devastating flooding. What scientists say is that some of the impacts of that flooding, some of the devastation could have been prevented with smarter growth and smarter development. What's going to happen to Houston now um, is, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is really sad. I think that Houston is going to be a different city. I think a lot of people are, especially in lower income areas of Houston, are not going to be able to come back. Um, They're not going to be able to rebuild. Uh, They may not have flood insurance. They may live in some of the many low-lying apartment complexes that are one story, that the water rose, they had to evacuate by boat, they had to stay on their roof for hours and hours, um, and they may not be able to to come back and rebuild, or they may have, and they may have nowhere to go right now and trying to fi- be trying to figure that out. Um, and even uh, wealthier neighborhoods of Houston, some of those neighborhoods are the ones that were built in some of the most 
frankly, dangerous areas to build. Um, you know, hmm. the homes that are inside, literally inside attics and Barker reservoirs are one example of that. But they are actually inside these reservoirs that are normally dry. But of course, when the reservoirs filled to capacity, these neighborhoods are underwater now. Um, and I think a lot of people there are also thinking twice about whether they can stay. But I just want to highlight that you don't, you're, you're a good objective reporter and you don't have to yeah, yeah. talk to me about the politics of this. But it's just so striking to me uh, that one of the reasons that Houston was able to be so diverse and have such an amazing immigrant community is because it had all these, all this low-income housing, you know, because people were not buying flood insurance. They didn't have to because there is literally no zoning in Houston. It's one of the largest cities in the country with no zoning. Uh, right. The, 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 the sprawl enabled the diversity, right? And what I'm hearing from you is that it's going to lose a lot of that necessarily because it will become a city where you have to be afford to be able to rebuild. You aren't going to go back if you can't afford it. Yes, I think that's true. And I, th- I think we saw a lot of that in New Orleans as well after Katrina. And we saw some of it in Galveston after Hurricane Ike, which got a lot less coverage. But, um, you know, a, a lot of people were not able to rebuild. Um, Ike in particular, we know New Orleans, these cities, I know more about Galveston, you know, lost a tremendous amount of its black population in the wake after the hurricane. So I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are not going to be able to rebuild for sure. They're not going to be able to come back. Um, and this is going to wipe out everything they had. Um, but, and I, and I think you're, I think it's fair to say that the, the sprawl, the sprawling nature of Houston and also the affordable nature of Houston, this has remained even throughout the recession, a relatively affordable city to live in and, or the surrounding suburbs have, there's been a place to live in. You know, it, it seems like a place for everyone. Um, and, you know, it may not continue to be that way. Is there anything that you think people aren't talking about, about Harvey, that we should be talking about? What are we, what are we missing from your perspective? Well, I would say that, um, I think the big question is, are we going to see more storms like this and how can we be prepared? Um, it's a very, very hard thing to do. I mean, we know, we've heard a lot of chatter about evacuation in the last few days. Um, mm-hmm. You know, no one, to my knowledge, has ever evacuated a city for a rainstorm. Um, but, you know, the Harris County judge at Emmett, I believe, recently said in the news, you know, maybe we need to rethink that for some of the areas that are really low lying in Houston, that, you know, even if you, you don't have to get tons and tons of rain for those areas to flood. Um, and when you do get an enormous amount of rain, they could flood to a, a life-threatening point where you're on your roof and you're waiting to be rescued. And and maybe maybe if we expect to see that much rain in the future, we, we do have to evacuate some parts of the city. Um, that's going to be a really interesting question. And just, you know, I, this is certainly an event that it's historic. We've gotten an insane amount of rain. It's fallen over an insanely large area at a very high rate for a, a very long period of time. We're going to hear unprecedented a lot. It is unprecedented. But I think we have to assume what the climate scientists are saying, what the scientists are saying, which is that we may see more storms like this in the future. And we, we cannot, I think, continue to have the response that we did here. I mean, it was, it was an, an amazing response, especially from private citizens. But, you know, if every one of these events is stretching our federal resources thin even, then I think we've got a problem in the future right. um, if we keep having events 
like this. And every time the resources get stretched thin, maybe we need more is, is what I would yeah. is what I would say. It's funny because like as a country, yeah, we decide we've we've made a lot of decisions that we don't have to worry about catastrophe. And I would actually point to our president as another example. <laughs> like we don't have to worry about, you know, everything, all of our systems failing. Um, but yeah, maybe we do need to worry about all of our systems failing. You know, the, the United States has decided for a long time that, you know, the infrastructure we have to pre- prevent against natural disasters, in particular flooding, storm surge, that infrastructure only needs to protect against a 100-year event. And sometimes it doesn't even get that far. So an event that has a 1% chance of occurring in any given year. Now we're seeing a lot more of those events. I think a lot of scientists are wondering, are these really 100-year events? Do we need to re- re- rethink that measurement? But in any case, that's what we've decided for a long time. In Europe, that's not the case. In many other countries around the world, um, there there's infrastructure that prevents against as much as a 1,000-year event. So something that has, I guess, a 0.001% chance of occurring in any given year. Um, so, you know, it's not unprecedented. It, it would not be unprecedented to change our thinking. Um, it would cost a lot of money. Um, but, you know, across the country, that's the decision that the that public and that's the decision that the public and policymakers have made is we only pay for protection for storms that are much, much smaller than Harvey and much less devastating than Harvey. And you're putting it in a very um, objective framework when you say that, but I would say because I, I get to be the political analyst yeah, here yeah. Uh, that this is a reflection of kind of our national character in a way. Like I, you know, I'm a patriot. Don't get me wrong. I love our country for many reasons, but we do have a tragically short memory. We are such a young country. I think that's part of it uh, that we tend to assume that bad things don't happen that often because we've been lucky enough for the next, for the last few hundred years that not that many bad things have happened to us. You know, in Europe, let's the Netherlands. There's a, there's a you know institutional memory that goes back you know many many hundreds of years, and they remember tragedies in their bones. And I think this country, and I'll be the one to make the comparison to our you know political conversation and where we are politically. We tend to assume that because things have worked out in the past, they'll work out in the future, and we right. don't prepare. We, we trust our institutions. Right. We don't realize how fragile those institutions are. Yeah, I, th- I think it's fair to say that objectively. <laughs> um, you know, we have a short, and the short memory is, I mean, I just moved to Texas four years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm a newcomer as well. I didn't live through or really hear much about Tropical Storm Allison. Um, I believe a lot of Houstonians have no idea what Tropical Storm Allison was because they didn't live there at the time. So, mm-hmm. and, and there were supposed to be many lessons learned from that storm to change the regulation for developing in floodplains, to change the regulations for developing around these massive reservoirs west of Houston. Uh, You know, scientists wanted to do that. Policymakers, to some degree, wanted to do that. That didn't happen. And 15 years later, most of that really is forgotten. Um, So absolutely, uh, there are short memories involved here. And you also mentioned the past, thinking that things are going to stay the same. I mean, that's really the big lesson of climate change, that we can't look to the past to predict what's going to happen in the future anymore. We, we could do that for a long time. And climate scientists say that we can't do that anymore. We can't look at how many floods we had in the last 50 years to predict how many more we'll have in the next 50. That's not going to work. It's already not working. Um, but yet that's what most, you know, not just the Harris County Flood Control District, that's what most flood control districts, most natural disaster planners are doing across the country. 
And there's one other thing I want to say, and you know, I know that everybody says this, and I, this is the first like real disaster that I've covered from the ground up. And um, I always thought it was cheesy when people said, you know, people really come together after a storm um, and help each other out. But I have seen so much of that over the last few days that I feel the need to mention that. Um, we've just um, been amazed. Uh, I've talked to many families who have evacuated with no help from the government at all. It was always a private citizen, one family who uh, they were at an evacuation shelter and they told me they evacuated their home by boat. They couldn't get through to 911. So a private citizen came and picked them up in a boat, brought them to a grocery store. A another person, just a good Samaritan, drove them to another pickup point and yet another private citizen drove them to the shelter. So, you know, Houston's diversity um, and growth, it's going to be in question after the storm, but it's also, I think, one of the big reasons that the city has a shot at recovering. Mm. I think we're going to end on that hopeful note. Uh, if people want to follow you on, on what you're doing on the ground, you on Twitter. What is your handle? Yes, it's Nina Reports, Nina with two E's. And they can find your stuff at the Texas Tribune and at uh, Reveal. Texas Tribune and revealnews.org, right? All right. Well, stay safe. And I look forward to hearing more from you. I do hope that there are things that we're going to be able to take from this and build on uh, literally and, and figuratively for the future. And I know um, reporting like yours is going to have to be a part of that. So thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. FrameBridge is the easiest way to custom frame your favorite art and photos without ever leaving your house, which I have to confess is something that I take into account with most of my uh, pursuits as whether I have to leave the house. As do the American people these days. That is right. And you may be interested. I had my first FrameBridge transaction not too long ago, which is I finally got framed the uh, letter from Obama <laughs> cool. that I'm pretty sure Cody wrote. Uh, to congratulate me on my wedding. Which oh, that's was nice. Almost three years ago. <laughs> but it's really super nice. You know, it's like Matt, it's also a signed photograph, which I assume was signed by a machine. Uh, and then it's this lovely letter that is it's fairly personal. But again, I assume that our mutual friend Cody wrote it. I think you know, that you shouldn't be giving away the, the, the game here. Oh, I should just say Obama congratulated me on my marriage. Because he did. Uh, he did. He, he, yes. He maybe, he maybe delegated the details. But he definitely did. And Framebridge framed it. And they gave me feedback on some possible stuff to use, like the, the what kind of matting and what kind of frame. And it is really easy. I did not do the digital thing, which they make very easy, which is you can have them frame, you know, stuff from Instagram or Facebook. Instead, they sent me the packaging uh, to flat package the photo and document to them. And you do that by going to framebridge.com. You can upload a photo from your computer directly or from your Instagram feed, like I said. Or if you have a physical item, which I just talked about, <laughs> they'll send you prepaid packaging so you can mail it in for free. We have many framed items at the Crooked HQ. Framed by Framebridge? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. nice. Uh, I, I noticed that some of our freebies were taken, so I guess that, yeah, that's what you guys did with them. Uh, preview your photo online in any frame style. Choose your favorite or get free help from their talented designers. The expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item in days. I like an weeks. ornate frame, like something they can hang at the Met. I, I think that's... That would be my guess about you. <laughs> or a mix. You know, honestly, though, I could go just sort of plain metal modern. You know, I like to, you know, I mix it up. I kind of like it when you have a contrast between the thing you're framing and the kind of frame you use. Like I like a really ornate frame, maybe for something that would be considered not uh, incredibly special. 
I want to be uh, uh, really pretentious and like frame a granola bar, you know? Um, I like I like framed, you know, like concert tickets and stuff in like a super ornate frame. Uh, but the best part of all of these things. This is when I saw Hall and Oates. <laughs> is that Framebridge is a lot cheaper than any place else. Their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, with friends like these listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com if they use the code FRIENDS. 15% off. Use the code FRIENDS. They offer a happiness guarantee. Happiness guarantee. That's They're offering something impossible, but good for them. You're good for them. It's something that I definitely cannot offer with this show, this show <laughs> to be quite honest. That sounds like a bargain. Yeah, it does. If I, I don't know if they offer it like in all areas of your life or maybe just about the framing. Like, I'm guessing they just about the thing you had framed. Frame like, me into a better job, Framebridge, you say to them. <laughs> That's a terrible if, joke. Uh, you get started framing your photos art today. Again, go to framebridge.com. Use promo code FRIENDS for an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com. Love it. Framebridge.com. Use the code FRIENDS. 15% off. What are you waiting for? So, welcome to the show, John Lovett. Great to be here, Anna. I've asked you on to help out with a listener uh, question. It is from Michael Hilbig, who is actually in Houston, Texas. Uh, We have ascertained that he is doing fine. And he was kind enough to send us an audio file uh, describing his situation. Dear Anna, I wanted to ask a question in relation to the idea of having difficult conversations. I've been part of a private Facebook group since the election in which the idea is to have liberals and conservatives speak with each other on respectful terms to try to get outside the bubble and see issues from different perspectives than our own. However, after Charlottesville, I was quite disgusted with the response of some people in the group who believed violence on the left was either just as bad or in some quick cases even worse than the violence on the right. I also kept getting this response from conservatives that I was being intolerant for saying that at this point, if you still support Trump, it's hard to deny that there's something racist in that support. After exasperation with trying to argue why Nazis are worse than Antifa and that Black Lives Matter is not a hate group, and after having that conversation ultimately fail to convince anyone, I decided to leave the Facebook group. So I guess my question comes down to this idea of when is it worth it to have a difficult conversation and when should we actually cut off communication? How do we know when we're having effective conversations that can reach some middle ground and when we are caving on our own values by conceding middle ground to people whose positions are just so clearly wrong? Best, Mike from Houston, Texas. Any first responses, anything off the top of your head for Michael? Yeah, I, you know, the thing I was uh, thinking about was what is your goal uh, in having this conversation? Because is it to, is it to convince somebody of something? Is it to try to plant a seed of doubt in someone's mind? Is it to prove how good and righteous you are? Is it to prove that people of different point of views can get along? Like, what is your desired outcome? If you're trying to change people's minds in a Facebook group, that is very, very difficult. <laughs> uh, if you, if what you want to do, and I, I, I often think that the that the that the best you can do in a circumstance like that is say basically can you be open to this idea right can you I, like you know nobody wants to be told that their views are racist or support 
racism. Nobody wants to be lectured in that way, certainly not on Facebook um, or really anywhere. I mean, I don't know what, what you thought, but my, what I always think in those, in those circumstances is all you can say is, hey, can you at least, can you at least be open to the idea that, that, that the people on the other side have a point? That, yeah. that whatever legitimate reasons you may have for uh, supporting Donald Trump, can't you see that to those of us on the other side, there are troubling racial implications, especially with what we saw in Charlottesville, but to not do that in an antagonistic way. Um, that, that, that's my initial reaction uh, to somebody who basically wants to find a way to make their voice heard in this sort of bipartisan Facebook group, but then is also frustrated that they're not breaking through. I think that you really zeroed in on where the real question is, which is what are you trying to accomplish? I, in my experience, these things where people like, oh, we're going to have a left and the right and we're going to try to meet in the middle are destined for failure. And they usually really are more about patting people's um, people, patting themselves on the back about doing it than they really are about making any kind of progress. Right. And that's not to say that it's not worthwhile to have people who you disagree with in your life. But from my experience, and I really I have actual direct experience in this, uh, the value of that comes through living your values in front of that person. Like my in-laws see me as a principled progressive person following through on what I say and think is right. And also treating them with love and kindness like they treat me. And I think that has had a much bigger impact on the way they think than anything I could actually say to them. You know? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. It's also it's not as though the that in your Facebook group you're going to offer somebody the crystallized best <laughs> version of of the view you espouse that 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 if somebody is conservative, they don't need to go to your Facebook group to find out what liberals think. They can, they're, it's everywhere. It's yeah. all over yeah. the internet uh, and, and vice versa. So, so I think that's right, that it's about, you know, trying to win an argument in a Facebook group, I think is a, is, well, there's two possibilities. Either you're trying to win an argument in a Facebook group and that is a waste of your time, or you're trying to demonstrate that people of different points of view can get along, but of course they can. Yeah. And I just think that talking about politics is not the place to do that. Like, that's why one of the things that I've been recommending to anyone who seeks my opinion on it about what they can do to help, you know, heal the divide in the country. I always say, like, go start walking dogs for the Humane Society in your community. You know, go go start volunteering in your community, doing something that you love where you're probably going to brush up against people you disagree with. Because I do think that that just everyday interaction with people who are different than us, that's what we've lost a lot of, in part because of Facebook. <laughs> you know, we just don't deal with people who dis who are different with from us, either ideologically or, you know, uh, class or race very much. And that is the way that when sociologists talk about change happening in a, in a society, when people change their opinions on something— whether it's Black Lives Matter or, you know, LGBTQ rights, it has a lot to do with their everyday interactions with people more than like they heard both sides and came to a, you know, 
yeah. a decision based on the evidence. Yes. When we espouse a point of view, we're, we're doing two things. We're really in the moment kind of reforming our opinion, right? When we say it, we are reestablishing what we think about it, but also we are making a claim about who we are as people. That when I say I am for whatever, a higher minimum wage, I am both kind of can, like, as if you were to say, well, why? Well, I, you know, I believe in a living wage. I, you know, I believe that a person working full time shouldn't be in poverty, whatever, whatever views I espouse, I'm both saying them and also reaffirming them to myself, but also kind of trying to demonstrate to you what my values are. Like, this Mm -hmm. is something I care about. This is something I believe in. And so if someone comes at you and says, actually, you're wrong about that, you're doing two things. You're you're trying to convince them of their opinion, but you're also telling them that they're wrong about something that they care about, that, that they value, that they have made a part of their identity, even in some small way, which is why it is very hard to change somebody's mind. And the least effective way is to try to convince them in front of a bunch of people on Facebook <laughs> because nobody, nobody changes their mind that way. Look, yep. we are, we're all, you, you know, this is interpersonal too. Like, you know, when you get in a fight with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, It is so rare that in the heat of the argument, you're like, you know, you told me that you were going to call about this thing and you didn't call because you're not sensitive. You very rarely, as you're saying that, but even as I'm yelling, I'm realizing that maybe I overreacted and actually I'm really mad about this other thing and I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, that's (laughs) not how it works. You have the fight, you get angry, you walk away and in the quiet and in some calm, You allow yourself a moment to reevaluate and then you come back, right? In this fight, you say, hey, you know, I screwed this up for whatever reason. That like, I'm trying to think of like, what are those, you know, those, um, those things, those like finger traps, yeah, China, they usually, I think they're known as Chinese finger traps, but that's probably not the way we should talk about you know, them these days. You know, Anna, I want to confess something to you right now. I knew that. And I didn't know how to, I've been trying to avoid referring to them for the last about two minutes and 30 seconds. But we're just, we'll just say that that is what they used to be called. Whatever and, term of art we're now using for what in right. my childhood and Anna's childhood was known reprehensibly as a Chinese finger trap. Uh, it's what, that's what it's like when you argue with somebody on Facebook, you mm-hmm. pull and pull and pull and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And it doesn't get that, that, that change, whether you being open to a new idea or someone else being open to a new idea, it happens under softer circumstances. I was trying to think about what can we actually offer Michael as advice. And I think one thing that comes to mind is rather than having a Facebook group that's about politics, that's specifically aimed at getting people on the right and the left to somehow talk about politics and figure out supposedly like a place they agree or listen to each other civilly or whatever. Like I would say, can you start a Facebook group about something you all agree on that you, but you make sure that there are people from, you know, different ideological sides there. Like puppies are great. You know, ice cream is good. And because I do think it's important to hear from people, to have people in your life who you don't agree with, like I said. Yeah, I I also would say one other thing I would offer is I think it's worth saying out loud something that we don't often say at the beginning of an argument, which is, hey, I'm really interested in knowing how you feel about this. And even if I think you're wrong and even if I think what you're espousing is ultimately contributing to racism, I guess you can't say that. But I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is 
people will tell you what they really think when they feel safe to do so. And when they, when it's, when they believe you're, you're respectful of their, you know, humanity and their goals and their sense of decency and their sense of values in the sense that like, why do you feel that way? You know, don't, rather than trying to convince somebody that they're wrong, I would say asking questions about why they feel a certain way, what, what makes them disagree? Like, don't try to convince, I mean, this is something you talk about on the show all the time. Like, don't try to convince somebody of something. Just ask them why. Yeah. And I think also, I want, I want to add one last thing because sometimes I forget to say this because we're so on the show focused on moving forward in conversations and trying to figure out how to make this stuff work, which is that if someone says something really vile, then I do think it is part of your duty to say you have offended me. That is something I find troubling You that you said that, you know, and it is also if someone says something vile and doubles down on it, then maybe this is not someone that you need to convince right now. <laughs> That's a good point too. That, that, right. There's two possibilities. Either you can have the conversation because you respect the person, you believe they're decent and they just have a different point of view or they just don't understand the way you see the world yet. Or there's somebody who has a bunch of reprehensible views and then you, you don't need to debate them and you're not going to convince them. And it's not worth putting aside your own values to have that conversation. Yeah, I guess what I was just trying to get at is people we are all so amped and we all come to these conversations with so much built up kind of grievance uh, on the mechanism that it's like, so that, that people like, even, you know, I think about this, you know, with pollers, with pollsters, like they make these calls and they're like, you know, who's more of a threat to the country, uh, the media or white supremacists. (laughs) And it's like, well, hold on. Like, you know, you're, 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 you're going to people and basically saying to them, you know, you're riled up, you're angry. What's the most trolly vicious thing that you can say right now? Um, so I just think people come to it ready to be attacked, a a presumption of bath, bad faith on both sides. So I think, I think to honest, I think to your point, it's like, come at the conversation with good faith. And if it's a conversation worth having, it'll be pretty clear. Yeah. Life is supposed to be a journey of discovery. The big meaningful stuff, love, purpose, experience, not trying to find your keys. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device. And now they've done it again with the all new Tracker Pixel. That's Tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R, by the way. With the Tracker Pixel, you'll never have to worry about losing your things again. Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. Place Tracker Pixel on whatever you tend to lose. Your keys, your wallet, even your cat. I contend that simply opening a can of cat food would probably get your cat found in a hurry. But keys, definitely. I am definitely putting one of these on my keys. It is small enough to fit anywhere. When you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, you use your smartphone and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It even has a powerful LED light so you can find it in the dark. Lose your phone? Just press the button on your tracker pixel and your phone rings, even if it's on silent. You can locate your item if it's miles away. Because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locating network in the world. 
It's a little like Waze, but for finding stuff. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. So go to thetracker.com, that's T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R.com, and enter the promo code FRIENDS to get 20% off any order. That's thetracker.com, promo code FRIENDS, for 20% off. Thetracker.com, promo code FRIENDS. Now my question is, do you want to talk about Game of Thrones? Oh, I'll happily talk about Game of Thrones. Why not? <laughs> you tell me when I'm not on the show anymore. We can be talking about it on the air, off the air. Let's talk about Game of Thrones. Um, now, I think that is this. Do we want to have a spoiler free conversation? No spoilers. Like, let there be spoilers. Like, if you so, haven't, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm tired. Like, tired of people who say they haven't. If you haven't caught up by now, you're probably not going to catch up. What I want to talk about is specifically Game of Thrones as a metaphor for climate change. Oh, great. Let's talk about it. Well, here's the argument, which is that winter is climate change, right? The Night King is climate change. Here's what I find persuasive about that argument, but I also have a big problem with it. What's persuasive about it is this idea that there is a global problem that we all need to band together to solve and that your our petty differences really are not material and to prioritize your own well-being over that of others puts us all in danger, right? Like that all works. But yes. And here's where I'm interested in as a viewer of the show, fellow viewer of the show, what you think. I'm not sure if the Night King is that implacable. I think he might actually want things and have motivations, which would make him unlike climate change. Well, we don't know. They, they, the, the Night King is, let's say, let's call him an undeveloped character. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know what the what the Night King wants. I do view I do like it as a metaphor for climate change. I, I've always thought the White Walkers just as an army are is climate change. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, they they there there was one conversation that Jon Snow and Daenerys have uh that was so explicitly a conversation about like how do you tackle something that some people don't believe in and that's diffuse and hard to see? <laughs> it was like, yeah. it felt very explicit. And I like, I like the, uh, the idea that Cersei, like a Koch brother is like, yeah, it's a problem, but you guys deal with it. <laughs> and I, and also lying about it. Right. Right. Like the Koch brothers, like, yes, yeah, sure. We're taking action. No, we're not. Cersei's like funding the, uh, the Westeros summer initiative, which, <laughs> uh, puts out research that says that winter will never come. <laughs> I love this. She's also like funding candidates um, that say that winter will never come. Winter won't come, but it's yep. snowing. It doesn't matter. Yep. doesn't matter. I Here's also w where I think the metaphor gets into trouble, but now we're just going to talk about the show maybe, which okay. is that I can see Cersei trying to have an alliance with the Night King if he is a character that can do such things. Yeah. Has he ever said a word? No. I don't, he's never spoken. Uh, he's very, um, look, he's very confident and I find that attractive. Uh, he's... <laughs> <laughs> Look, he's somebody who knows what he wants and he goes for it. That's right. And has really good aim. He's very good aim. <laughs> it does seem as though he's been a step ahead this entire time. Uh, Jon Snow is so bad at being in charge over and over and over again. And he is constantly rescued. And it is yet another reminder of as long as you're, a, as long as you're, you know, Handsome. I don't know. Handsome and a, a main character. Yeah, like, you're fine. You're like, gonna be okay. It's like how many? Like, I mean, the guy now he's he's killed one third of the dragons. 
<laughs> with his with his idiocy. He, he, I mean, come on. What was this plan? What was this dirty dozen plan? What was, was that? It was terrible. And that's why, I mean, again, whole other conversation. But like now that they've outpaced Martin, like the show's falling apart because he gave them an incredibly firm character and plot structure that kept it all, that reined in the worst instincts of a fantasy writer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he created real real world consequences in a fantasy environment. You know, like one of the lessons of the show is that honor means nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> or at least that's one of the lessons of Martin or rather honor should be pursued for its own sake rather than for um, reward. I think that would probably be a more fair analysis. Well, right. That, that, that well, like, you know, stupidly adhering, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, you know, honor isn't necessarily rewarded, but sometimes it is. Treachery isn't always rewarded, but sometimes it is. I mean, it just it just felt like that when there were when people characters paid a price for their decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also what I think made it seem applicable to the real world, yes. which is why I think it, it made, made it so much fun, I think, especially for politics junkies like us to watch is that it did kind of mirror a real world calculus of decision making and costs. Also, I mean, it, that is why I, I would say that, like, oh, look, I, I love the show. I will, you know, you know, it, I, I wish this season had made some different choices, but I still love the show. But like, that was why I was so overall, like, with the end of the season, had this very, obviously very cool moment with the wall and the dragon and all the rest. But then I, I found myself thinking, like, we have spent years talking about this wall and the role it plays, about how it needs to be manned and guarded and that, uh, that. For so long, it hadn't been paid attention to because everybody treated the White Walker threat like it wasn't real. And Jon Snow was going to change that. I mean, we've been on this, the whole idea, like there was whole seasons where they talked so much about how the wall was neglected and Eastwatch and the the Night's Watch and how it was important and, and, and they weren't taking it seriously because they were, you know, feckless and, and comfortable. And then actually none of that was relevant at all because the wall itself was resolved in two episodes the most recent two with a, with a kind of denouement. Does that mean wall coming down? What does denouement mean? Uh, I believe it means curtain coming down or something. Oh, like that, so it's it? kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in, with a dragon ex machina, right? Well, that's just that like that, that, that wasn't something we could have, that it's not dramatic irony. That's all. Yeah. I love the show too. And I'm here for Jamie finally leaving Cersei like that on its own, like redeemed a lot of the, season for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's still so gross. I mean, that's the other thing. We had this really, we, on Love It or Leave It, we had this, uh, uh, Andrew T is a really funny uh, uh, comic and podcast host. Before we had watched the finale, he basically went on this rant that was like, Game of Thrones has been inconsistent on, you know, the virtues of these characters and what they want and how far they go, but that it's been consistent on one thing, which is like, is incest okay? <laughs> um, and it, And I was watching this finale and I was just thinking, Oh my God, he was right. Jeez, they are a little too comfortable with this. <laughs> Super comfortable with incest. It's Weird. real. It's true. And I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how Martin would have handled it, but like there would have been consequences. And I'm not sure if they're going to be consequences. Maybe there will be. Look, yeah. maybe we're just, you know, we are, this is an intermission. You know, there's more episodes to come. 
you know, there's maybe these people will all pay the price for their dumb decisions. And maybe we'll have like a short-lived um, Crooked Media spinoff that's mm. just about Game of Thrones. And finally, analysis. a Game of Thrones podcast. Yeah, finally. The only one you'll ever need. Stamps save you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I can mail any letter, any package using just my computer and printer, and the mailman picks it up. You can avoid the hassle of the post office. Again, you can stay home, which is everyone's goal these days, and mail everything from postcards to envelopes to packages. I sometimes use the post office as an example of the way that government can actually be one of the best things in our lives. Like, isn't it kind of amazing that the mail just works the way that it does? You know what's amazing about the mail? Using the mail without having to leave your home because of stamps.com. You did that all by yourself. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingerprints. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. At Crooked, we use Stamps.com constantly. We're always mailing things using Stamps.com. We have the printer. We print. We send it out. It's delightful. You guys are getting more and more like a real business every day. Honestly, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing thing that's happening. Uh, um, you know, I'm leading a leaving the startup lifestyle, um, and and that's part and part of it is stamps.com. Well, it is part of any, especially a small business where you don't have time maybe to go to the post office because you're busy doing everything I'm you making, have to do. How can I go to the post office when I'm busy making all of these deals? I'm doing deals. <laughs> I'm making deals. I don't have time to go to the post office. If I go to the post office, that's three or four deals that I could be doing instead. Maybe six deals, maybe 10 deals. Your time is precious. I go to the post office. I get stuck in a line. All of a sudden I'm missing 15 deals. (laughs) So many deals and you can save all of that time. Stamps.com. And you also can use a promo code for that. Go to the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. Use the microphone. You type in friends. That's right. Stamps.com. But what do you get when you use the code? You can use Zams.com service with a special offer that actually this is really good. It's a four week trial. Four it's a week free trial. Four week trial plus postage and a digital scale. And there is no long term commitment. So you can weigh I, you can weigh things. You can weigh things. Stamps.com. You click the microphone, you type in friends, you get in this trial now. Yeah. Four weeks. Four weeks. Imagine the deals. That's a February. <laughs> That's an entire February, four weeks. And that is almost it for our show this week. I have one more segment to go, and it is in response to a few uh, pieces of email and tweets that I got this week asking me for my perspective as a progressive Christian on the so-called Nashville statement. So I gave it some thought. And here they are. The biggest leap of faith I've ever taken, and the one I continue to take every day, is to believe that I am loved. I have found my way to that belief through the teachings of Jesus Christ. But I don't pretend to believe that's the only way. Other people find grace through art or nature or philosophy or service to others. And those paths, I think, in some ways are superior because no one claiming to represent a forest is going to come along and tell you that you aren't loved, that you aren't equal to others, that you have to change or suffer. And people do that in the name of Christ all the time. A group did that just last week. 
releasing something called the Nashville Statement, which shames both the beautiful city of Nashville and maybe even the word statement. It attempted attempted to define the Christian viewpoint on gender. And that a group of so-called Christians felt compelled to diminish the dignity and humanity of their LGBTQ comrades at this moment in history is a reminder and maybe a necessary one that progress in civil rights is fragile and that reactionaries never really surrender. They either change their minds or die. And they will do as much damage as they can for as long as they can. And those of us who live in a bubble of privilege need to remember this, that there are backwards and hateful attitudes towards LGBTQ people. No matter how marginal those attitudes may seem, they have life or death consequences, both in the ways they play out in individual families and communities. And because this fringe attitude of hate now occupies some of the most powerful offices in the country. And those consequences are linked too. transgender youth count for a disproportionate number of the nation's homeless population because they leave their homes. They're either forced to or they don't feel welcome. And the man in charge with helping to address homelessness in this country is Ben Carson, a molasses-witted walking Wikipedia entry who has treated his time at HUD as a kind of personal gap year. He has mostly toured the country and created work for his wife and son, according to a recent article in New York Magazine. But apparently one of the few areas of policy implementation that's garnered any momentum at all in the past nine months is a push to remove institutional supports for helping transgendered people get off the street. I don't think that's something that Jesus would do. Not that I would advocate using Jesus as a policy guide. I I don't think that that's what the country needs. But I do advocate using as a policy guide the same standards that Jesus would use. Are we doing the most we can for the least among us? Are we treating each other with dignity? Are we thinking beyond our own narrow self-interest? And that's the standard to judge the Nashville statement by as well. And it fails. But if you are one of the people attacked by the Nashville statement or you care about someone that was targeted by it, the policy questions are probably secondary to the pain that you feel. And I can't do much about your pain. But I can tell you this impossible truth because I believe it against all odds for myself. You are loved. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.